Welcome to another episode of Between Lewis and Lovecraft. Thank you so much for checking us out. This show is all about learning more about the authors that have inspired us and diving into the stories that they not only created, but lived as well. So join myself, Tyler Clausen, and my co-host, Hannah Ray Lambert, as we explore the worlds that live just out of reach. All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. Ernest Hemingway is one of the best-known classic American writers. He published seven novels, six short story collections, and two nonfiction books during his career, which primarily spanned the mid-1920s to 1950s. He lived an adventurous life from start to end, and those adventures and the people he met directly influenced his writing. Sup. <laughs> and that's how you end your book report. <laughs> Bitches. <laughs> Bitches. <laughs> Welcome to our Parisian cafe where we're drinking black coffee like Hemingway did, talking about books like, like Hemingway, Hemingway did. did, staring at the beautiful Parisian people in this this looped video I've got going on YouTube in the studio on my TV like Hemingway did. Yeah, these people are like way more modern than the ones <laughs> Hemingway saw. Like, I see women wearing pants. <laughs> what? Anyway, welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft, a podcast where we discuss the books and stuff. I already did the intro. I'm Tyler. I'm Hannah. We have not introduced ourselves in an episode for a very long time. That's because you introduce us in that little pre-recorded thingy. I do, but I like the act of talking <laughs> about our show. Oh, you were going to say the act of talking about myself. <laughs> I like the act of talking about myself as Hemingway did. Mm. Oh, snap. Tyler is Hemingway. <laughs> All right, guys, we're talking about Ernest Hemingway today. If you hadn't guessed... And uh, some of you might have mixed feelings. Some of you might think, oh, that douchebag, <laughs> you'd be interestingly correct. Or that sensitive guy who had a sexual revealing halfway through his life and had to deal with a lot of personal issues, you're also correct. Or, or you might be thinking, that guy that wrote those really boring motherfucking books that I had to read in high school, and you are also correct. Whatever preconceived notions you have, you're probably right. Hemingway was all things to all people, a very biblical man. <laughs> That's why they call him Papa. I'm pretty sure that my pastor just exploded. Yeah, right? I really no, hope your Tyler. pastor doesn't listen to this episode. I hope he does. I don't do stuff that I'm ashamed of. Like, I... I I, you know what? That's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> I'm like Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> he said proudly. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm I'm moving my mouse, trying to get it on my laptop here, but the mouse is for the TV computer, and so oh. it's not the same, so I'm kind of freaking out here. That's a real challenge. Hannah, we're talking scenes. about Hemingway. We are. We have so much to talk about. We don't have time to sit here and joke about things today. I think that's my cue to start reading this outline at y'all. Let's do it. So Ernest Hemingway was born July 21st, 
1899 in Oak Park, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. His parents were Clarence Edmonds Hemingway, who was a physician, and Grace Hall Hemingway, who was a musician. Um, she kind of struggled with that. She had some health issues that made it hard for her to be a performing music- musician, so she mostly just did it on the side and also taught lessons sometimes. Yeah, she was a, a music teacher. Yeah. So um, his dad was like, super manly and like good at everything i don't know if you saw that his dad like was an amateur taxidermist so he always had little stuffed animals and snakes in jars in the house he also like spent time with native americans and learned how to do like native american things and then he taught his children how to do it and it's like i'm sorry that's the setup for a superhero origin (laughs) right like having a super scary dad who teaches you the secrets of the native americans and then you become like captain america or something yep I don't know, man. With arrowheads. <laughs> yeah. So his dad was super cool. He also was like uh, a, an accomplished baker or something. They had this one story about when he was camping with friends and yeah. wowed them all by baking a fresh blackberry pie in the woods. Yeah. He like rolled out the pie crust on a log using a beer bottle. He was all about like wilderness stuff. And then like they didn't use their kitchen almost ever except when he wanted to bake something. And then Grace never cooked. Yeah. Grace was... Kinda she was not, not the traditional wife. She was not a traditional wife at all. She was she actually made some money from some songs that she wrote and she had she had a debut at uh Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. I think that's Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh sorry, I was just trying to remember if there was another big place in New York where you would have a debut, which <laughs> that was it. Like it was a big deal. She was actually making enough money to where she was like justifiably not a traditional wife. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. pretty interesting. So um, Hemingway was the second of six children. Um, I would say that he was like probably closest with his older sister because she was less than a year older than him. Marcy. If we're if we're talking early uh, childhood, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've got my little I've got my little note here. You want to talk about your, what Grace did with him and his older that? sister? <laughs> yeah, I've got it for later, but it's totally fine. I'll talk about it now. She wanted twins. Grace wanted twins like really badly. So when she had. When she had Marceline, their oldest daughter, and then Hemingway almost not even a year later, she treated them like twins. Yeah, like, she, like, dressed them up in matching outfits and yeah, stuff. Yeah, they they would switch between wearing girls' clothes and wearing boys' clothes. They would cut their hair the same length, and that's going to come back later. <laughs> they would cut their hair the same length so that they looked the same. Like, Ernest's childhood was filled with the thought that he was a twin to Marceline. That's how close they were. So, yeah, in childhood, they were really close, but they started to drift apart, obviously through pragmatic means because they realized- Like geographic yeah, location not, and stuff. We're yeah. not twins, <laughs> yeah. and we have different ideas of how things should be. Yeah. So I think growing up, he was probably closest to that sibling. Um, of the six children, there was only one other boy, and he wasn't born until Grace was 40. Yeah. So he was like- Super young. He was a lot younger than Hemingway. Oh, there was a point actually, too, where um, Marceline was held back in school specifically so that she and Hemingway could go to class together and be twins. That's just mean, Grace. Get your shit together. It wasn't just a little like, oh, I wish I had twins. Like, she legitimately (laughs) treated them like twins. She tried to socially engineer her family. Yeah, man. Dang. So they had... um. They kind of like split their time between Oak Park and also they had a cottage at Bear Lake. Um, And I think the Bear Lake cottage was what really influenced a lot of Hemingway's early life. It Mm -hmm. was, as 
the biographer I was reading, Carlos, ba- Carlos Baker, wrote, he said it was an environment ideally suited to manly endeavors. Yeah. It was very outdoorsy. He spent a lot of time like fishing, camping, canoeing, accidentally falling and stabbing himself in the throat with a stick. Yeah, like, what the heck, Luckily, man. his dad's a doctor, yeah. so <laughs> fix that right up. But yeah, so he just had this like very outdoorsy upbringing yeah. um, with a lot of like physical activity. And I, I do think that's a, a, a good point where uh, you're what book are you reading? What's the name of it? Uh, Well, the cover fell off because yeah, it that. literally like snapped off in my hand. This book is so old. Um, it's one of the like preeminent Hemingway biographies written by Carlos Baker. It was written in the 1960s and okay. he spent like seven years on it. Yeah, um, I think it was with like in conjunction with um, Hemingway's widow. Like she gave him access to all of his letters and stuff. Um, and I, I read, or I should say, I listened to um, Ernest Hemingway, a biography by Mary V. Dearborn. And this chick gets into it. Yeah, I feel like she's like she, got an agenda and she's rolling with it, whereas yeah, Carlos man. Baker just presents it all very Oops, dryly. She started talking again. She's She wants to be a part Come of this Come on, Mary. This isn't about Mary. you. Yeah, no, she, like, I started with his grandparents. Like, that's oh. where she started. And I'm yeah. like, oh, no. This 30-hour <laughs> <laughs> audio book is going to go into it all. And and she does. She goes into uh, grandparents, parents, him, his siblings, and then, like, later on in his life, all of his friends. Like, every single time a friend is prominent in his life, she goes back into that friend's <laughs> life biography and gets to the point it's insane. Good she is Lord. thorough, but there's definitely an agenda. So just <laughs> we'll so you guys that know, that's later. where I'm coming from. All right. So um, it comes up again and again in, in the biography I was reading by Carlos Baker that Hemingway portrayed like a good Christian boy growing up. Um, he was afraid of several of the run-ins with the law he had. Like there was one incident where he shot a blue heron. And, like, oh, had yeah. to go on the lamb. He, like, ran away to a neighboring island or something. Well, and Grace covered for him. Yeah. Straight up, like, harboring a fugitive sort of thing. The sheriff came around. She's like, nope. We're Get good. off my lawn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he had, like, this kind of thing where he would do impulsive things and then really freak out about it and yeah. feel very bad. And it sounds like he kind of, at least earlier on, acted the good, chaste son in front of his parents because his parent or his dad especially was like a very mild mannered, like devout Christian person. Yeah, I mean throughout his entire life. Throughout his father's entire life, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think Hemingway was kind of like walking a, a thin line. There, yeah, I think he was. He was definitely. I mean, like all kids do, they they don't know any better. They they only know what their parents teach them. So he was doing that, but then there are parts of his personality that didn't match up. So right, yeah. So moving on to school, um, my biography didn't talk a ton about how he was at actual classes, but he did a lot outside of class. Sure. He was super involved. He was a pretty good athlete. He participated in boxing, track and field, water polo, and football. Yeah. Um, It was noted that he had to work a lot harder at football than the other sports. Like he wasn't, he wasn't a naturally gifted athlete. I think it was something that he just enjoyed and like worked hard at. He liked the idea of sports. He liked the sports where you are the solo competitor though he that's why he liked boxing, boxing a lot yeah um he was not good on a team which again <laughs> we will see that come back later in his life but what he really excelled at was writing sports and mm-hmm. he would he would make himself 
this football hero when he would write about his own sports in the newspaper for the school. Like, a <laughs> little bit of bias there. <laughs> BS. Like, if Hannah, you're a news producer, if you went out and you're like, guess what, everybody? Hannah Lambert's <laughs> the greatest news reporter of them all. Like, everyone would be like, okay, obviously you need to get her off the story that involves her. <laughs> yes, right? I can't write about my own stuff, yeah, guys. It doesn't make sense. No, but he always did that. Like, as a child, he would come up with these tall tales and tell everyone and yeah. make up heroic stuff that he did. And his grandpa was like, you're either going to be a psychopath or like a really <laughs> gifted uh, writer. So hopefully it's the latter. So but you yes. can really see that starting to come out. His writing is is coming through in this school. Right. And you mentioned he was um, reporting for the school newspaper. He also um, performed in school plays. He had a lot on his plate. He would write high school fiction, too, which was bought by the tabula, which it sounds like that was a high school yearbook, but it specifically said like they bought a couple of his stories. Yeah. So I don't know who was getting paid for their high school fiction writing. But... I, don't, I don't know. Um, and... Uh, this one can wait till later. But at the same time, him and his friends created an underground magazine. Like, he had gotten so into the idea of selling his stories to magazines and stuff <laughs> that he's like, we should start our own. And it's called the Jazz Journal. And this is a big deal. Like, jazz at that time was uh, almost a slur mm-hmm. for um, specific groups of people. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was it was not a term. Now we're just like, oh, yeah, jazz music. But, like... Back then, it was it was not good. To it be was into like, jazz. oh, you listen to jazz music. Well, it wasn't even jazz music. It was like the culture of jazz. Those jazz people, like it was really, really bad. It's the same way I think, like with jaywalking. Like nowadays, we're just like, oh, jaywalking. But back <laughs> then, when it was used, when it was created, jaywalking is a slur. Like if you were a jay, it was like a specific group of people that, like. To say you're a jaywalker would be the same as saying, like, you're a dirty blah, blah, blah person and you're so bad that you just cross the streets illegally. Okay, making a note to self to cancel the term jaywalking Yeah, now. it's it's really interesting. Uh, and so, like, the term jazz is the same way. Um, so him and his friends, they started writing in this underground magazine and they would pass it around to each other and then they got found out. Um, and, you know, pulled into the office. And again, it was this situation where he's like, he felt super terrible, but he's doing these bad things. <laughs> yeah, it's like he doesn't see that there are going to be co- consequences for his actions. Right. So, I mean, kind of moving forward through his school career, it's when he got to the end of it, it's not clear that he ever applied for college. I think his dad had these very high like site set for him yeah he's a doctor he yeah. wants his kid to do the same sort of sort of stuff or at least be like super successful in some field yeah but yeah it's it's not at all obvious that Hemingway <laughs> even bothered to apply to college right um uh he did have one other close scrape toward the end of his senior year that I wanted to mention yeah so he and some friends were out camping and at the time the Chicago newspapers had all been reporting on a gang of prowlers that were going around and like terrorizing people so in the middle of their camping trip, this group like pounces on him, tears apart their tents, starts running off with all their gear, and Hemingway chucks an axe at one of their heads and barely what? misses. And then after that, he finds out it was a prank, and the people <gasps> who attacked him are just classmates. Oh, pranking no. Him. And, and so he, he almost killed he, one? Al- he almost killed him, and he felt so bad. He was like, oh, my God, if my axe had hit him. Yeah, like, that's what? insane. I didn't know that story at all. Yeah, they were getting up to shenanigans in yeah. the 1920s. Or- 
pranks yeah. were real back then. Yeah, I remember right. my senior prank was I didn't do it because I wasn't cool enough to do a senior prank and get away with it. People just put like spoons and forks into the <laughs> into the uh, football field or something like that. There's like a bunch of forks and spoons. Everyone came in and they're stuck into the grass. That's it. Yeah. That- and even then, people were like, I can't believe how disrespectful <laughs> these children are. It's like, no, back in the 20s or early teens of 1900s, they were like, gangs. Yep. They were like, oh, you know what? People are really freaked out about these prowlers. We're going to pretend to be prowlers yeah. and scare them. Jeez Louise, man. Uh, yeah. One quick little thing. Uh, he had lingo. Like, he would come up with weird lingo and nicknames for everybody. Yeah. His friends were uh, a huge part of that. And they... They started adopting it because he was so adamant about it. Like, Pete, once he gave you a nickname, that was your name. That's what you're called. Like, now. you were basically rebaptized in Hemingway's, you know, religion of names and lingo. It was crazy, and and his lingo moved into his writing, and it was yeah. it was prominent in there. So, well, and his nicknames that remained as an adult too, like. Even oh, when yeah. he's hanging out with all these like accomplished writers, they're all giving each other nicknames. Some of them are very bad yes. and racist, <laughs> and I'm not going to repeat them. <laughs> Some of them are just delightful and funny, like Weming, hey? Yeah. So it's super interesting how close he is with his friends, but and yet, I don't know, he, he's got some distance issues. I yeah. Think. So after high school, he, he was kind of excited to be squeezing in one last summer in northern Michigan. Um yeah, very, it's something his family always did. Yeah, and just having that opportunity to, you know, be outdoors again, doing what he loved. Yeah. But at that time, I don't know if they mentioned it in your biography, he was already, like, showing some signs of instability and, like, really hot-headedness. Um, they mentioned in this biography that he confided in a friend that sometimes when his father punished him, he would go and sit in the doorway of a shed where he had a view of his dad and he would sit with his shotgun aimed at his dad's head. What? I'm just like, what the hell? Holy cow, man. Yeah. So I think like that's really a, a preview of some of the the mental health issues that are yeah. to come with, with I Mr. I didn't know anyway. anything about that. Yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> oh my gosh. That took a dark turn. Yeah. And then he's just right on to the next thing. So after his summer um, back with his folks, he then spent a few months reporting for the Kansas City Star. Um, he stayed with his aunt and uncle and then moved in with a friend from back home and then finally out on his own. And mm-hmm. this was all over like a few months. Yeah, like he was... really bounced around from living situation to living situation. Mm-hmm. Um, um, in this time, <laughs> this is one of my favorite things. In this time, he's gone away from his family for like the first time. And he's living in Kansas City, writing for the Kansas City Star. And he just happens to start up a relationship that he tells his whole family about with a famous uh, movie star. I don't remember her name. I can't I can't for the life of me remember it because Mary's boring and she didn't say it enough. Um, <laughs> but there was this period where he would write to his family and be like, oh, I met this person and we're going out. We went out. But I can't tell you who she is because she's famous. Oh. And then he follows it up with like, like, oh, well, you can see her new movie coming out, like, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, it's this. And he's like, yeah, but, you know, and he's like, we're going to get married and all this. And, like, to the effect where people are, people to this day still are like, did they go out? Because he's (laughs) so into this. Like, it could make sense. But then, like, people who do a deep dive of her 
relationships and where she was at that time. They're like, they couldn't have crossed paths. It doesn't line up. Like, maybe he met her once as she passed through Kansas City. And then he was like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't that the saddest, like... I've got a girlfriend. She's super famous. Like. Oh, my God. That's so depressing. But also, like, that leads into one of my rants about Hemingway is that he was probably, like, an entertaining writer as a reporter. But, like, you can't trust Anything. Him. He makes up so much shit. Oh he exaggerates. God. Or he'll do charming things where, like, somebody else will say something and he won't correct them. He'll just, like, lean into it. Right. They'll be like, oh, my God, you're such a hero. You're so cool. And he's just like. Okay. I mean, if you say so. Yeah, so I'm like, he was probably a very good writer, right? but not a good journalist. Yeah, not a good fact teller. Yeah, facts matter, Hemingway. But, I mean, he's working at the Kansas City Star when he's in his late teens, just out of high school, and he learned so much there that would inform his writing later on. Yeah. Um, Like a lot of the newspaper style guides that are like, write, de- declarative. Oh, I can't speak. Declarative. Write declarative sentences, use short sentences, use short first paragraphs, use vigorous English, not forgetting to strive for smoothness, be positive, not negative, and stuff like that. Yeah. So just the stuff that, you know, newspaper reporters are all about writing as condensed as possible, yeah. saying the most with the fewest words. And hit some of the people, uh, again, I don't remember this dude's name, but uh, one of the the like prominent writers at the Star was known for being like they would be like oh yeah he's got four stories in his head and he's writing the fifth one right now while he's (laughs) on the phone with the person for the sixth story like it's insane but that's how it was back then like they 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 were pushing out so much information because this is a time before internet right Mm -hmm. like they are the predominant way of getting any information and we were at that time becoming more and more global at, you know at, at america itself was becoming more united and the way th- that that happened is through newspapers right so at that point he still had like a pretty low level beat or whatever and he wasn't yeah. getting bylines very often but he was working with these yeah, really bylines. highly educated totally. i know what that means but as- that's where your name is on top of the article Oh, yeah. gotcha. He, he wasn't getting very many of those because gotcha. he was working alongside like Harvard educated people and yeah. just really important <laughs> uh, big People wigs. who learned that facts are important. Yes, those people <laughs> who hopefully had long thriving careers in journalism. Yeah. But so around this time, he started to obsess about actually getting into the war. He like as a as him himself or America getting into that. I think he started to I think he was um influenced I can't remember his friend's name but I think it was another guy who was working at the Star yeah. was like thinking about how cool it would be to go over there and he they saw like um this recruiting effort for ambulance drivers and I think his friend might have actually done that and then come back and he was like oh yeah it was a, a jolly good time <laughs> uh, uh, Yeah that's how you want to describe right? war War yeah <laughs> So, uh, this is World War One. we want to point out. Just yeah. in case people aren't following along, this is like 1918 or something. Not even then. 17, 1917. Yeah. yeah, so he's like 18 years old at this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I'm sure a lot of that was influenced by, you know, patriotic sentiment in the country as well. There's, there's so much. I mean, we could get into World War One at just as a whole podcast. But <laughs> there's, um, if you haven't checked it out, there's a show called Hardcore History. Mm-hmm. And he does like a four-part uh, four uh, series on World War One. Each episode's like three hours long. It's really good. <laughs> um, and he talks about how um, in World War One, 
it that was the change between how war used to be and how war is now now it's gritty and dark and you know it's only necessary when things are really bad but before world war one war was a game war was something there was a season of war and in Europe, it was something that you did to prove that you're a man. You would go off to war and there would be all these different things. And that's exactly what Hemingway's look view of war was at this point because he's young and he's reading all these stories and he's writing all these news stories. And he sees how the Europeans are uh, used to at least view the war before they got into trench warfare and all that. And I think that's exactly the sort of thing that stands out to his personality. Right, yeah. The he sees glory an, of war. An opportunity for fame and glory. Exactly. And yeah. um, originally, it had seemed like a moot point, him going to war because he had a bad eye. Sure. Like, couldn't see that well. And also, his dad was super opposed to it. So yeah. he was just like, eh, it's never going to happen. It, is his dad... Um, like pacifist is that why he's a i think he was mostly just like worried about him which is a very parental thing um but then they saw the advertisement or the recruitment for the red cross um so in december of 1917 he signed on to be an ambulance driver in italy um and this was after he had tried to enlist in the army and failed because of his eye issues um he's getting there some way yeah, he's and, and even if it's just driving an ambulance. Yep. Which turned out to be the easiest best job <laughs> ever. So, they sailed out from New York the following May, um uh, and there was this period where they had to like chill in New York for a long time and he's oh, like no. super bored with it. He's like, "Uh, I don't want to be in New, New York, York anymore." Uh, I was in Kansas City. I <laughs> right? don't care about New York. And then they get to Paris as that city was under b- bombardment from German artillery. Mm-hmm. And he's like describing like at one point, a, a building blew up really close to him. And he was like, oh, that was scary. And then he gets bored being in Paris. He's like, right. I've seen all the sights. I want to go out to Italy now. <laughs> so they finally go to the Italian front in June. On his first day in Milan, he was sent to the scene of a munitions factory explosion to help people retrieve the remains of shredded workers. Yeah. And female workers. Female workers. And that was something that really stood out to him as being very disturbing because he's like, you know, when you go to war, you expect to see all these dead dudes. Yeah. But you don't expect to see dead women in literal pieces everywhere, like picking up the pieces. Um, Yeah, he described the incident in his nonfiction book, Death in the Afternoon, quote, I remember that after we searched quite thoroughly for the complete dead, we collected fragments. So it's just this super disturbing scene. And I think this is the first time. I I mean, at least as far as we know, he might have seen other stuff. In, in the bombardments or other situations he was in as an ambulance driver. But this is where we start to see a pattern of Hemingway's where he looks at death full on, mm-hmm. unabashed, and he is ready to describe it and understand it. Um, and this is something that comes in within his writing and his personality through his friends and stuff. And I, this is one of the first times I think that we really see that. Right. And it kind of shapes his, he has like a very mature view of death. It seems like, even though at this point he's only like 18 or 19 years old, like he's already getting like kind of this hardcore fast, you know, you're just in the grittiness oh, of I it thought you right were now. Go fast and furious. Fast and furious. No, <laughs> it's a very fast and furious it's a way fast of looking at and death. Furious immersion in death, and that's <laughs> yeah. why Vin Diesel plays him in the new <laughs> <laughs> Hemingway biopic. No, so a few days after that incident, um, he was sent to a different part of Italy, and then 
I didn't see a whole lot about his experience until July. I mean, this is from June to July, so it all happened very fast anyway. Sure. Yeah. Um, in July, he was seriously wounded by mortar fire. Um, but Be- Real quick, yeah. just to back up before you get into that. His job was literally to hang out with people. Yeah. At one point, he was stationed at a place where his job was to work in a bar and just hang out with the Italian soldiers and make them happy. That was his job. I could not think of a better job for me. <laughs> I mean, come on. All I want to do is hang out and make people happy. Well, go hang out and make people happy in the Middle East, We need to Tyler. start World War Three, <laughs> so I can become an ambulance driver, go to Italy. <laughs> and hang out with and super cool out people Ita- drinking. Hang out with Italians and drink with them, smoke cigarettes, and talk about stuff. Tyler says this as we get into the part where Hemingway almost died. <laughs> super fun time. Yeah, so super fun. He was wounded by mortar fire, but despite that, went on to help rescue uh, other Italian soldiers, get them and to safety. And we're getting into some gray area. Oh, because you don't think he really did that much? I don't know what he did. End of the day, here are the the facts. Let's list the facts of what happened. Do you know the facts (laughs) of what happened? Spill the facts. He lived. Everybody else died. Everybody but one person died. And he is given the, uh, he is, is, um, frick, what the, what the frick is the frickin' word? Um. Credit. Oh, the credit. He's given the credit of saving this one other person. Those are the facts. Everything else is up in the air, and it depends on which story you believe <laughs> Hemingway is telling at the time. I mean, I believe nothing Hemingway says, but obviously everybody else did because they gave him the silver medal of bravery in Italy. Um, but he was like a mess when they found him. They thought he was like dying because yeah, he was he got, covered in so much up. blood. Yeah. Um, but it was mostly other people's blood, but also his leg was completely shredded. It was so gross. They, I'm going to tell you, it's so gross. But they were like, it looked like um, somebody had put jelly in a uh, cloth yeah. and poked holes in the cloth Ew, <laughs> and the jelly was oozing out. out. I was like, oh, because he had so much shrapnel in his leg and it took forever to get it all out and yeah. like he was picking some Month. of the smaller pieces out on his own. And giving them to people. Yeah. He was giving it, and we'll get into that in a minute, he was giving that the shrapnel as like like, oh, here, here's a little souvenir of my heroism. <laughs> but here's the thing, here's my problem with this situation, why I got so into it. It's it's the story of telling this, you know, like, I caught a fish this big. I'm holding out my hands. <laughs> and the next time you tell the story, it's a little bit bigger. And the next time you tell it, it's a little bit bigger. And it went from him, he, like, jumped on top of a dude to save him from shrapnel, which is why his leg got fucked up, to him getting shrapnel in the leg, picking the dude up, and walking him all the way over to, like, uh, a safe place where he saved his life. And, like, he's this hero, this Captain America hero sort of thing. And it's like, which story is it? What happened, dude? Like, how did you go from I fell on a dude to I picked up several men and threw them into safety and sacrificed my own life? And I'm only alive by the grace of God. Yep. And, And I get that there's the idea of replaying stuff in your head and changing it and remembering um, extra remembering details yeah. and i also believe that there's a certain sense of like i need to be the hero in this situation as you relive it that way i can um justify me living 
because he's got to have some sort of PTSD from mm-hmm. that. He and he needs to have survivor's remorse. He is one of two or three people that survived that situation. Why is he alive? And I think for Hemingway, he has to play it up and be like, "I'm a hero. That's why. That's I live. why I'm alive." Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, that's a one hundred percent. Uh, what's the term? Arm, Speculation. Armchair therapist. Oh, or whatever. Uh, sure. Arm- I can't remember what? the term. Oh, armchair quarterback. No, or, no, no that's Monday not, morning quarterback. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nope, I am not a Monday morning quarterback. That's for damn sure. <laughs> this Monday is a long, long time later. <laughs> Some therapist. People will probably tell me what the right thing is. So he had a long recovery process, as you mentioned. Um, he spent five days at a field hospital before he was even transferred to an actual Red Cross hospital in Milan. Yeah. For six months. So while he was there, he was still making friends because he's freaking Hemingway. Yep. So he made friends with Eric Dorman Smith, whose nickname was Chink. I don't know where that nickname comes I've, from. But I, I wasn't going to say that one. I don't think it was uh, racially based, though. Oh. Okay. I, I don't re- He was some Irish dude. Got so you. I don't know why, but that's like his still, preliminary name. There's like, no reason name. for that word to exist outside of being a slur. So. I don't know what the context was in 19... 19- 17 or whatever. Uh, Definitely the same, if not worse, than it is now. This was way Mm, pre-Vietnam. We're talking after people are, like, getting Chinamen to build railroads for us and all kinds of stuff. Like, it's a, I don't, I think it was a slur. Uh, And I, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and say that Hemingway meant that. Well, I'm not sure either, because yeah. Carlos Baker gave no context whatsoever. <laughs> he didn't. And yeah, everywhere in history books that this dude appears, they use his nickname. But Eric Dorman Smith was like some really prominent uh, military commander, uh-huh. and he like had a long career after this. But they were both in the hospital at the same time and formed a really strong friendship. Um, he also shared a room at one point with uh, future American Foreign Service officer, ambassador, and author Henry Serrano Viard. So he's making all these friends while he's recuperating or whatever yeah and he's also like lavishing in the like praise that he's getting from back home yeah because people are sending him like little news clips or whatever and being like oh my gosh all the papers are talking about you because you're the first american wounded in italy and he's just like soaking it up he's like oh my god i'm the coolest so this is where james gamble comes in oh okay yeah so so i i wanted to bring it up just because it was a I, I wanted to figure it out. James Gamble is another friend that he made at this time. Um, he was a captain, and um, it is it's said that it's because of Gamble that he got moved to Milan out of mm. the field place. Like he like he helped him get over there, and then um, and there was a, a talk. There was talk between them of Gamble saying, "Hey, like you should come travel Europe with me." for a year um and there's some connotations that go with that um uh, and there's even small story of like james like kind of coming on to Ernest in the hospital and Ernest being like yo i'm i'm not into that here's a piece of shrapnel (laughs) as a souvenir (laughs) like legitimately he did that like no i'm good i don't i'm not into dudes here's some metal from my leg (laughs) Um, I mean, it seems as good a way as any to. But this is a time where homosexuality and bisexuality was becoming um, not mainstream, not even more accepted 
worldwide, mm -hmm. but um, within certain cultures, within certain circles of, of more specifically the Bohemian um, culture that was happening at this time. And Ernest, um, it said in the biography, like he he was very interested in uh, homosexuals, not not in a way of like bashing them or anything, but just of trying to understand them. And this was the first time he came face to face with it to the point where the dude literally invited him for a year to travel with him free for free. Like, so there's like, why though? What? Like, why would you, why would you pay for everything He's other just than a super nice bro? Exactly. I think, and Ernest, uh, turned it down, I believe, uh, because there's no mention of a year <laughs> yeah. in, in, uh, <laughs> Europe. Um, but, there are there's um later on in his life there's another friend of his who had taken that same deal not from the same gentleman but uh taken the same deal and um became a, a good writer and wrote a novel and Ernest was jealous of this at that time and had written in response like i guess the pathway to becoming a good writer is through the colon yeah because he knew that, like, uh, it's through this year spent with the man, his patron of a man, <laughs> letting him just do whatever he wants. Like, there were there were payments that needed to be made. Like, so like it was pretty well known. And so I, it's it's interesting to me um, that not he at this time in his life he's like, nah, I'm good. And then later he makes fun of people for doing that, taking up that. Uh, same offer. The same offer, offer. Because uh, later he had he had some not gay friendly writings too. He right. definitely had some homophobic stuff going on, like saying, "Yeah, I think there was one quote where he said like, you know, homosexuals are the reason I carry a knife with me wherever I go or oh, whatever." Damn. And I'm like, "Oh, that's charming. Like, yeah, thanks, well. dude." Um, but it's interesting that he had kind of that that relationship early I, on. I think he's just unsure. And because um, he's so young, he is young, and I, I, this is someone who you know I'm watching this because it's what I'm interested in. I'm I'm very attentive to what is his sexual appetite look like because to me that gets at the the core of a person, right? That's why it's so interesting. Like C.S. Lewis, like spanking, it's very interesting. <laughs> Lovecraft, probably. A homosexual, you know, Mr. James didn't like women, <laughs> didn't like sex, didn't ever have anybody, right? Like it's interesting to me, and this is one of the few times where it's like, oh, I I feel like he might be gay, but then it's very obvious that he's not. Mm. Um, and so it's it's super cool. Yeah. I, I don't know. I like I like finding stuff out about him <laughs> like that. Well, he makes it very obvious that he's not gay immediately after. Yeah, <laughs> because of. Agnes. Agnes. <laughs> so there was this hot nurse who was seven <laughs> years older than him. All the dudes loved her. Like they would all, all compete to try to get her to go out with them. And she was like a really hardcore rule follower. Mm -hmm. So she, I think she only went out with like one of them at one point. She finally caved. Um, but yeah, she was like the the girl that everybody wanted. Yeah. And he fell hard. Yeah. So they did have like some sort of relationship. But then he had to go back to the U.S. And 
he was under the impression this whole time that Agnes was going to come be with him. Yeah. He wrote her so many letters yep. that at one point she wrote back and was like, you have to stop sending me so many letters because I'm actually busy because I'm a Red Cross nurse <laughs> and I don't have time to respond to them all. And she called him kid all the time. All the time. Which is like a little condescending. Yeah. It was it was pretty bad for he was pretty bad for her. Yeah. Like, he was in love with her. He and and I think it came out in his macho competitiveness. Like all the men want her. That's I'm why gonna he be wants the one her. I want that I'm gonna be the one that she wants back. Uh so That being said, young Hemingway was a straight up hottie. Like yeah. <laughs> I don't know if anyone out there has seen pictures of him from the wartime, but he was a good looking dude. So for some reason and I and I think it like it's because they look similar and I've seen pictures of Hemingway, but I cannot help but only see um um not Orwell, not George Orwell. Uh Orson? Orson Scott Card? No. <laughs> I don't know who Orson is. The uh the dude that did War of the Worlds and oh, um Yeah, that was Orwell, I think. Orwell? I thought Orwell oh, wrote nineteen eighty four. Who did Orson Welles. Orson Welles. That's Thank you. almost Orwell. That's oh my god. That's <laughs> who I see in my head when I picture Hemingway. Because they look really similar. I have never seen a picture of Orson Welles, so hold on one hot second. Oh, they look similar, like older. Not not young, you don't think? I don't think young. Hemingway had like a, a great jawline and stuff. Like, that is something that people talk about. He was he, he was good looking. He was good looking. And he, he was, exercised all the time, so he was, he was built. built. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Outdoors, so he was probably tan. Yeah. You're right. When they're older, they look a lot alike. They look and a lot alike. They, they both put on pounds and grew a beard, and that's literally <laughs> it. I Now that I'm looking at them side by side, uh, they look nothing alike. <laughs> they are both old men. Old white men. <laughs> with black and white pictures. They both had a mustache at one point. <laughs> I think Orson Welles is cooler looking, though. He's got that pipe. Yeah. I'm we sure. need to do an episode on Orson Welles. Well, we'll get there. <laughs> In the meantime. Just... I can't do an episode without talking about another episode we got to do. You know this, Hannah. I do. Despite Hemingway's hotness, though, Agnes did not remain faithful. She fell in love with some other... Dude, like Some a other French dude. Rando. So they called him a Napoleon. So I'm assuming he was a French dude. Oh yeah. And she was like, you know what, Hemingway, we're over. And oh yeah. It she broke his heart. Him. She straight up broke his so heart. So sad. Uh, and this is when he's back in the states. So before we get into him being back in the states, let's take a quick commercial break. It's become a cliche to say that we're living in uncertain times. So I won't say that. Instead, I'll say that these times are certainly questionable. And in these questionably certain insecure times, we can try to find solace in the little things. Looking past the questionably unclear, certainly insecure times, perhaps a book can help. At the book nook, you'll find unwavering resolve to weather the indeterminate, unreliable times. They will not only non-anti-non-uncertainly find the book of your definite choice, but they can faithfully ship it to you just about anywhere. They just sent me 
Empire of Imagination, the story of Gary Gygax and Dungeons and Dragons. For a possible, uncertain episode I might be doing down the road. So, in these vague, questionably, unpredictably hazy durations, pick up a book and let the book nook in Canby help you out. Because together, we can all do a lot more than what one person couldn't do because there's more of us. Probably, they couldn't do alone. So we could do it together, most likely. BookNookCanby.com So there Hemingway was. Sad, depressed. He got a fever. He got a fever. He's a little bitch. <laughs> he was heartbroken. He was writing <laughs> angry letters to mutual friends in which he wished that Agnes would fall and break all her teeth. Oh my god. Yeah, <laughs> it's did. like, he what the hell, really man? Mean letters. Is that normal? Like, I'm not a dude, but like, have you ever had that reaction to somebody not returning your feelings where you're like, I hope she breaks her freaking teeth? No, because I'm not a psychopath. <laughs> when Okay, I've had two girlfriends in my entire life. One of them I married, right? <laughs> the, the first one, I was a freshman. She was in eighth grade, and she broke up with me after two weeks. And she's like, yeah, we're, we're done. And I was like, yeah, all right, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's it wasn't fine. cool. I, I'll be okay with this. <laughs> I was fine. Honestly, I was fine. And then, like, two years later, I started dating who is now my wife. So I've not had to deal with, like, super heartbreak. <laughs> but I feel like I handled the one time of heartbreak <laughs> pretty well. And I was a freshman, and I handled it better than an adult man. An adult Thank you for confirming for me that this is not how <laughs> normal, well-adjusted men react to a breakup. I wouldn't say I'm well-adjusted. <laughs> Okay, well, even not well-adjusted men don't just, wish grievous if bodily harm. all I harm. can say is I'm more well-adjusted than Ernest Hemingway, then I'm I'm good. You're doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> At so, least I'm not Hemingway. <laughs> Did that be our shirt for the episode? Yes, with his <laughs> face on it. <laughs> <laughs> so, not that it even matters, but Agnes's relationship did not work out, which I found charming. Um, it turned out the dude was actually like set to inherit a dukedom or something, and she went and met his family, and they were like, "You're not good enough for our son." So. Oh snap! <laughs> she just got poor Agnes. Yeah. <laughs> I guess um, at some point they like sort of made up or whatever because she wrote him letters later oh, on, being they? like, "Oh, I wish you well. Like, it's really cool to see your success." So he got over it. Yeah, but. I don't think he would ever really get over the feeling of that heartbreak because it seems like, at least from Carlos Baker's standpoint, that this really influenced his future relationships and, like, not fully committing, not getting all the way close and kind of, like, self-sabotaging. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I, obviously, I see the pattern, but I didn't think about that. I, I didn't think about the fact that this one fake relationship that he had... That was mostly in his head. It was all in his head. She called him kid. She did not want to be with him ever. <laughs> there was not a moment that she wanted to be with this guy. He made it up. But she probably, I mean, she had to have let him on. She shouldn't have written him letters for that long. You, She's a but... wartime nurse. <laughs> she's probably horn dogging it up hard. But there's a difference between her flirting with this guy and wanting to be with him. Yeah. And he just took every single small little thing and turned it into, 
we're gonna get married. We're gonna get married. Gonna She's gonna come to America. Together. I'm 19 years old, <laughs> and I'm gonna end up with this super hot nurse chick. Yep. Because all the other guys want her, and I'm gonna be the one that gets her. And then he writes a story where he ends up with her, and then she had to be like, "That never happened." <laughs> like people were like, "Did this happen when you were together?" And she's like, "No, nothing ever happened between us. This story is fake. It's not a real story." <laughs> Poor Hemingway. <laughs> Maybe he thinks he can just like write his life into going the way he wants it to, but he couldn't. He couldn't. He, so you can't fan fiction your own life. Oh. That belongs on a bumper sticker or something. (laughs) (laughs) So he's back in the States, back home, and he's so lonely and depressed, not just from the breakup, but he's back home and none of his friends are. And he's this dude who like lives for social interaction. He's he's so intent on being popular and like always hanging out. And so he's just he's got no one to hang out with. Yeah. Um, He it got to the point where he like and I don't. I saw no indication in this biography that there was anything sexual about this, but where he was hanging out with 11-year-old girls and, like, telling them stories. Okay, so we just jumped a, a few things from where I wanted to Where to did get you want to go first? Uh, first, he's injured and he never shuts up about it. Like, he talks to everybody about it, right? Which I get. That's the biggest thing that's happened in his life. You know, he went off to war i use quotation marks because he didn't go off to war he went off to go be an ambulance driver there's a difference oh He's a cleanup all the guy. ambulance veterans are gonna send us hate mail <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> if there's a group of people that are ambulance drivers for the war that are like i don't mean to offend <laughs> he didn't join the army though they wouldn't allow anyway uh, so he never shut up about it, which is fine. And then he even uses it to get some small jobs. He goes and starts giving speeches. Like at churches, it sounded like. Churches and, stuff, yeah. and old folks' homes and all kinds of stuff. So he's making a little bit of money doing speeches, which I'm going to be honest, that sounds cool. My goal in life is to to get to a point where my career is I just go give speeches. Obviously, I like talking. I record myself <laughs> doing it every single week. Tyler wants to do TED Talks. <laughs> oh, please. Yes. <laughs> but absolutely. Okay, so he's giving these speeches, but did it show up in yours at all? Like, he sometimes lied about Everything. the war experiences. Yeah. Like, he's... And weird lies, too. Like, there was one where he said they, like, basically massacred a bunch of Austrian soldiers or something. And I'm like, why would you even lie about that? Like, yeah, I have it no doesn't idea. make you look yeah. good. <laughs> Um, I'm, tr- I'm, I'm looking through my, my list here. Never shuts up about his injury speeches. Okay. So here's the ridiculous thing. He literally walks around in his uniform. Oh yeah. But not just the uniform that he was given while he was an ambulance driver. He made some alterations. Like he added a really nice cape. Like, like he's walking around, um, I just imagine this guy walking through the streets of Michigan in a in a ambulance outfit from World War One and this big cape just going behind him <laughs> and he's just like talking about like, Yeah, I uh, got got hurt in the knee, carried fifteen guys on my back, saved them all. Like, I don't know. It's just want a piece of shrapnel. He's being so dramatic and so ridiculous. Dramatic. He loves the attention. Um and and yeah, he actually so at this time uh, is when I think him and Marceline started to kind of drift away as far as, as you were saying earlier, how close they were. 
um, he started to resent Marceline a lot because she was given money and went to college mm-hmm. while he was off at war, which was his own choice, yeah. by the way. He didn't apply to college. But his parents wouldn't pay for him to go to college, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, but they paid for Marceline to go. And so he resented her, even though she only went for one term. And then she was done. She dropped out. But she was always the one that went to college. Yeah. In this time, he's going through PTSD. He's dealing with a lot of stuff. And so the sister that he ends up actually really um, getting along with is Ursula, mm-hmm. um, which I think is his youngest sister. Maybe. Yeah. They all came pretty quick until the last boy. Right. So and, not a huge age difference. And, and I could be wrong. It's not really important. The, the important part is like she was really there for him. Like she would sleep in the room with him when he's having bad nights she would make sure that he's okay um i was i was tempting the idea of going weird with this and being like why is she in the same room with him but i believe that you can have a sister relationship without it being weird uh i'll get into that in a little bit and uh but like there's there's this weird or it's not weird it, i've i've never had a sister that i've been close with so i don't understand it but i do like just the the fact that it's like he came home and she wanted to help him. She wanted mm-hmm. to take care of him. And that's what she did. And in so doing, he ended up meeting a lot of her friends who were all between 11 and 14 years old. And he hung out with 11 and 14 year olds as a, what, 19, 20 yeah, year like old man right who had been to war and come back and has a job writing and telling stories and speeches. Like, it's fucking weird. <laughs> He's not doing super well right now. He is the epitome of that guy that just cannot get out of living in the past. Yeah. He he peaked at 18 and he's just riding the coattails, the cape tails the of cape that. The cape tails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's where he is then. Yeah. Um so I mean, at some point he kind of gets out of the slump um and I think that's around the time a family friend invited him to just Come up to Toronto. Stay with us. Yeah. And he accepted and somehow ended up writing for the Toronto Star Weekly. Um, So he had this writing gig up there. He eventually returned to the States um, and then moved to Chicago to live with friends. So, again, this is like him ping-ponging around. Yeah. Kind of directionless, um, but also really taking advantage of all of his social connections, which is stunning to me because I have, like, no social connections. I can't just go live in Toronto. Like... Yeah, how do you make friends? How do we? How do you and I live in the age of information where if I wanted to, I could jump on Omegle and I could talk to anybody from all over the world, right? I've done it because <laughs> I, we've got Russian or Ukrainian listeners, and it's because I was like, oh, let's try this out. It totally worked. It was awesome. That's the extent of it, though. So, <laughs> like, I'm excited that we have one listener in New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's living with his friends in other countries. Yeah. He's do, from like small town Illinois or how whatever. How does he make these friends? How is he how are they so close that he could just be like, "Yeah, you know what? I'm just going to go live with them." I think a lot of it must have been his parents. Like they yeah. must have been well connected cuz you know, they had good jobs and stuff, well respected. But yeah, it just blows me away that all throughout his life he's able to take advantage of these connections. Mm-hmm. So, He went to Toronto, came back to the States, moved to Chicago um, to live with some friends. And this is where he met another person that was going to have a big influence on his life, which was Sherwood Anderson, Mm. who was another writer um, and also very well connected in the writing community. Um, Around this time, he also mentioned that he met um, 
Ed, I think it's Edwin, I wrote Edward, uh, Balmer, who was a Harvard grad, former Chicago Tribune reporter and a novelist. And he kind of like broke him out of his funk a little bit. Yeah. Um, it didn't end up having like any direct impact on his career, but they talked about the art of fiction and he like wrote a list of possible magazine um, editors for Hemingway to try contacting to publish fiction. Yeah. So I think it didn't have those direct results, like it didn't work out with any of those editors, but I think it kind of snapped Hemingway out of his funk. Yeah. So um, we're getting to his 21st birthday, right? We're, or have we passed that already? I think we might be in around that time. Okay. And yeah. and his 21st birthday brings up an interesting topic or a couple interesting topics. The first part is that this is this around this time. I, I said earlier that on his 21st birthday, he got kicked out of his house. And you were saying that it's like around. It said shortly afterwards, there was an incident. The one that Carlos Baker credits with being kind of the instigating incident is when he and a friend and Ursula and some of her friends like went out, rode out to their little lake cabin or whatever. Yeah. And like were getting up to no good in the middle of the night. And his parents really blamed him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because he's a man. Yeah. He's the one. He's older. Yeah. Um, and so I, th- I think that's an interesting segue into the conversation of him and his mom. Mm-hmm. This is where we start to see his dislike for his mom, which that will come in later. I haven't even gotten to a lot of that in the, the biography I'm listening to. Um, but it's, it's gone down. It seems from some of the foreshadowing that my author has said that he does not like his mom towards the end of his life or their life or whatever well even earlier on i think um i think one of his sisters mentioned that they were kind of too alike in some ways and that really made them clash yeah um almost in that way that they might have both liked girls (laughs) (laughs) tyler has been wanting to bring this up for so long yeah yeah well okay so let's back up just a tiny bit Earlier, I said that Marceline got to go to college Mm -hmm. and that they wouldn't pay for Hemingway to go to college or for Ernest to go to college. And one of the reasons why is because Grace, who, like I said earlier, was making some money on the side with her music, with teaching, with some royalties, with some of her performances. And she used that money rather than on her family to build a second vacation home. Okay, let me just repeat that real (laughs) quick. One vacation home in northern Michigan. Not enough. I want a second vacation home from my family's vacation so that I can go on a separate vacation from them. By herself, you may ask? No, not by herself. See, the Hemingways had a nanny. They had a nanny who would take care of all the children, and she was not much older than Ernest himself. And she would go on vacation with Grace to this specific house that Grace built for her and her nanny. And in in letters that they would write to each other, there was professes of love. There were things where they were like, yo, uh, Mr. Hemingway is not a big fan of us being together, but I love being with you. And being with you is the only thing that makes me happy. Look, it was a different time. I'm not going to sit here and say that all relationships between women where they profess love for each other are guaranteed sexual relationships. But when you bought, when you build a second home <laughs> to be away from your family so you can be with the nanny, if a dude did that, 100% everyone would be like, yeah, they're fucking. So, like. You make a solid argument here. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
in that, I think that Ernest is smart enough. One, he's resentful towards his mom for not paying for him to go to college. And I think, two, he's smart enough to understand what's really going on. And I think it's, again, a small seed that we're going to see come out in his personality later. That he sees his mom continuing a relationship with another woman while being married to her husband. Mm-hmm. Right? And he can see, he sees this works. This can continue on. <laughs> They're still married. And then, I don't know, maybe she uh, she becomes very, in a lot of her letters to Ernest, she's very Christian. She's very proper. She constantly reminds him, like, look, you need to write stories that that show the, the fullness of God. Put on the armor of God and, and stuff. So she is a biblical believer, at least in her writings to Ernest. So I I don't, I'm not going to, I don't know where that relationship ended with the nanny, Um Obviously, that would go one adultery and two uh, <laughs> homosexuality. Do not go hand in hand with biblical living. So I don't know how that ends up. But I, I don't. If if we can look at that and go, oh yeah, that's for sure happening. Why couldn't Ernest? Yeah, and that would make a lot of sense because I don't think this biography touched on the possible nanny relationship at all. But it did make a big deal of how mad Ernest was about the fact that she spent all that money on building the cottage for herself. Yeah. And he felt really, like, snubbed by that. And that really influenced their falling out. His Mm -hmm. mom wrote him a bunch of letters where she was basically saying that, like, he had overdrawn his account with her so many times. She made motherhood sound like a a A transaction. (laughs) Yeah, an investment. Yeah. So she was... It was kind of her being like, you know what? I'm done with you for now. Yeah. Yeah. And and so this is around his 21st birthday, and it gets to a point where he is basically, like, cut off from the rest of his family. Yeah. He complained um, to another friend that he was now literally homeless, kicked out permanently for no good reason. Yeah, sure. No good reason. No good reason. I mean, he's kind of an asshole, but <laughs> his mom had her flaws, too. So that was, that was my long spiel. That's, yeah. It's just interesting to me that he he didn't like her for specific reasons, but was okay with other things that she was doing. Yeah. To, at least that's how it seems. Family relationships are complicated, y'all. So. So, moving forward, he he's staying with his friends in Chicago around the time that he meets his first wife. Mm-hmm. So, Hadley Richardson... Um, she was also, she, yeah, she was eight years older than Hemingway, too. She had come to Chicago to visit the sister of Hemingway's roommate. So she was coming off of, like, several years of taking care of her dying mother, like, in this very self-sacrificing way. And she's finally getting out of there and, and going on a little adventure. So they met and immediately kind of hit it off. Um, they, I feel like he was kind of pulling back back a little bit in the middle like not fully committing Mm -hmm. but then they finally ended up setting a date for the wedding and around that time he reconciled with his family enough too yeah to where his mom said that they could use her cottage as their honeymoon (gasps) trust me it's been broken in babe it's gonna be real good yeah now that whole has a whole other (laughs) set of implications there um so yeah so they got married in 1921 and the thing about hadley was she had a little bit of a trust fund and they spent a lot of their time together living off of that. Ernest was not the type to just like pull up his bootstraps and go get a job or whatever. He was very much the I'm going to write type. Yeah. So I think 
that kind of said a lot about him too like it was similar to the issues his parents had with him is he was just kind of living off of her and taking advantage of the kindnesses that she showed him and that other friends because you know he would be the first person to take someone up on their offer to just go live with them for free right let them pay all the rent (laughs) like (laughs) i i I know people like that yeah right (laughs) no we all know people like that yeah they're not as um famous as Hemingway that was uh, yeah I think he gets away with a lot later on um so about two months into their marriage he was hired as a foreign correspondent for the Toronto Star so at first he was like mailing from the you or yeah he was mailing from the U.S. like pieces for publication in Europe yeah um and it took forever to get them there because the 1920s um and eventually the couple decided they were going to move to Paris and before they left Sherwood Anderson, his writer friend, had written letters um, on their behalf introducing them to different expatriates over in Paris, notably Ezra Pound, the poet, and Gertrude Stein. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And this is going to be my last random sexual fact until we get to a bigger thing much, much later. Uh, <coughs> random has, sexual facts. <laughs> Hemingway has been has gone down as, uh, as quote, um, they do nothing that they are disgusted by and nothing that is repulsive afterwards they are happy and they can lead happy lives together Hemingway for his part said of Stein I always wanted to fuck her and she knew it (laughs) which is so weird because she was also sort of like a motherly figure to him because she was significantly older oh yeah and she was way more like successful in her career at that point than he was. She became his mentor. Yeah. She became the number one um, opinion of his work that he wanted. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had lots of friends. He had lots of people that were directing him and helping him. And we're going to get into a couple of those later. But Stein was was the the most important opinion to him to the point where he quoted her in his first real novel. Right. Yeah. She had a huge influence on him. Um, and I think she was the godmother of his child. So yeah, yeah just so kind of full circle there. I don't know what where that quote comes from. I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, he was he was having an affair. I have no idea. It that's comes a, from that's the... literally a quote that he said. That's all I know. No context. It probably comes from like the like horny ramblings of a young twenty something. Like, and it probably had to do with her hair. We'll get into that. In a little bit. <laughs> um, I thought it was funny too, Ezra Pound. After he met him the first couple of times, Hemingway wrote like a satirical piece on him, like making fun of Ezra Pound so viciously. And he showed it to a friend like he was going to get it published or something. And the friend looked at him and he's like, you can't publish this. Do not do this. Don't do this. And it ended up being a really good take because Ezra Pound ended up being a really good friend of his and also a mentor. So it's probably good that he didn't. Totally rip him apart in a satirical piece. And we're, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that once we get to uh, his first book. Okay. Because there's that's not the first time nor the last time that that's going to be a, a situation. Gotcha. But I want to let you keep going because we got to move along. We do got to move <laughs> we got, along. We got so much. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, this- just so you guys know, we're, we're almost towards where we want to cut off. <laughs> this is a two-part episode. Um, we're we're gonna be doing uh, we're going all the way to his first book in 1926, The Sun Also Rises. So we're getting there, uh, just you know, and it's it, there's a lot about this guy that is just so interesting. Not just his sexual endeavors or his <laughs> mom's sexual endeavors. There's his personality is very very interesting. Yes. So we're getting up on on the point where he starts publishing some actual 
real longer collections of works. Yeah. And the infamous suitcase incident. So he. Oh yeah, this is so sad. She was traveling to Hadley. Hadley was traveling to Geneva to meet him in December of 1922, um, and she had taken a bunch of like suitcases including one full of his manuscripts All and the his. carbon copies everything that he had been working on with was like in... two exceptions yes was in that suitcase and she, somehow like when the people were were taking her luggage into it the suitcase got stolen or it got lost something happened and his manuscripts were all gone that we have no idea what happened to him there's speculation the facts are she left, she got on the train with it, or rather she put it into to luggage. Yeah, she had a bunch of suitcases. And then it was never seen again. Never again. And I, every everything that I've read and the biographer I listened to said this was, this was the reason that they stopped being uh, a couple. And not, not right away, because they were together for f- several years after this, right? But this, he never let her forget about it. Yeah. And I mean, I get it. I totally get it. Not that I'm like, hey, you should, you should like commit suicide because you lost <laughs> all of his shit. But this is what he is. This is who he is. He yeah. is a writer. It's what he wants to do with his life. It's his passion. He makes money doing it. And he's working on, he was working on a novel at that time. And it's gone. Yeah. Right. And I, if Becca lost my, my stuff, one, that's not going to happen. I have digital copies of everything. So unless she goes and blows up an entire portion of Google's network or something, like, then we have problems because she's a terrorist. But, like, if Becca lost all my stuff, I would – I don't know how I would react. No, it's just I a love shitty... her very much. But I want to be a writer. I, I have worked so hard on my books. And to have them just disappear – and you have someone to blame for it. Even if the blame doesn't directly fall on her. Like, it's not... She was trying to do a nice thing. She's she like, was. I'm going to bring you your manuscripts yep. along with all my other luggage. And somehow it went missing. Yep. But it just sucks so bad. He got on the next train and went back to their apartment. To look to for. To look for something. Anything. Hoping that she's like... He's like, no, 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 you didn't put them that you obviously you are mistaken. You didn't put them all in there. That's why you can't find them. They're back at the apartment. And he immediately goes back, checks, and they're not there. Yep. And there's few exceptions. Like you said, there were some people that had some writings that he had sent to them to get, um, uh, you know, critiqued and looked yeah, at. Yeah, so there were like two manuscripts yeah. remaining. It was, it's nuts. Yeah. I cannot believe that that happened. And I feel so bad for Hadley. Because she, there's no way that she couldn't take the blame for that. There's no way to get out of that. And it's such a nightmare situation. You want to love your husband as best as you can. And he's a writer. And not just a writer. He's fucking Ernest Hemingway. He's not Ernest Hemingway yet, but he's getting there. He is, though. (laughs) That's part of his personality. If you look at him and his friends and everything, he got away with so much because Everyone knew Ernest Hemingway was going to be going Ernest to be Hemingway. BFD. He was going to be the one of the greatest writers of all time, mostly because he told people that, <laughs> which sucks and it's annoying and I can't stand to be friends with people like that. 
But look at who's successful nowadays, like YouTubers and people who do, you know, their own writing and, and things like that. These indie content creators and a, a large uh, majority of them are people who do the exact same thing. Like, I'm going to be the greatest at this. You know, every single rapper is like, I'm the greatest rapper. Like, like it's a mentality that you have to have to get to that place. It's hard to be modest and great. You know what I mean? Hemingway, Hemingway was not modest, and he was great. And Hadley knew it. Hadley? Hadley. Hadley knew it. All of his friends knew it. And so for her to lose his work, even before he was, quote, Ernest Hemingway, <laughs> unquote, that it was, oh, it's just off. I feel so bad for her. I feel bad for him, too, because it's his work. But I feel bad for her. Because she has the guilt. Yeah. She has to live with it for the rest of her life. Even after their divorce, she still lives with it. Despite that horrible incident, though, they make a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there was something they like wanted their son to be born in North America. So they left Paris, even though they really liked Paris and Hemingway didn't want to leave. Yeah. They went back to Toronto. They didn't make it back to America. actual America. They weren't like, oh, we need him to be American. Just But like he's North already American because yeah. his parents are American. So I don't really know what their plan was. But they went back to Toronto. Yeah. Um, where their son, John Hadley Nicanor Hemingway, was born um, in October of 1923. They named him after a bullfighter that they really liked when they would go to watch the bullfights in Spain. That's where the Nicanor comes from. Yeah. So, yeah. So I they, think we're probably going to get into the bullfighting stuff in the next episode. Because there's a lot. Well, I mean, it's very influential very of his yeah. uh, first main book. Okay. So, around the time when they're still in Toronto, that's when his first actual book, Three Stories and Ten Poems, gets published. Yeah. Um, But Hemingway really hated Toronto. So they turn it around and go back to Paris in 1924. Um, And, I mean, this is where all his connections are at this point, all of his writer friends. Yeah, this is his culture now. Yeah, he's Parisian right now. So he helped edit. um, Expatriate, Parisian, Bohemian. It's a culture that he is living in. Yep. um, So at this point, he helped edit the Transatlantic Review, which I think was like started by a gay guy named ford something ford which like why was his name super english guy yeah ford maddox ford or something um who you know was a big factor in his in hemingway's career too um and the transatlantic review published works by poundstein and some of hemingway's own early stories such as indian camp which ended up being one that got a lot of praise yeah critics in the u.s were really um, really digging it. They said Hemingway reinvigorated the short story genre with his crisp style and use of declarative sentences. And even his dad was astounded by how well Hemingway could reproduce memories from such a long time ago through this story. Right. His dad was like, I can't believe that you remember something even close to this happening when you were such a young person to be able to write it in such clear and honest ways is super impressive. Yeah, so this is getting him huge praise across the pond. Um, and then around this time, he was also forming a friendship with F. Scott Fitzgerald, who, yeah. of course, is best known for writing The Great Gatsby. Yeah. Um, and they formed kind of this this friendship that had kind of a double-edged sword to it. it he admired weird, him man. a lot, but also they had like this hostility and competitiveness. I, they, I feel like it was only Hemingway. Well, yeah. <laughs> because the more- It's all in his so head. <laughs> we, 
I have thought about like, hey, maybe we should do an episode on Fitzgerald. Like he, the Great Gatsby, you know, it's the, the Roaring Twenties, all of that. Um, I think I learned more about Fitzgerald through Hemingway's biography than I would have through a, a Fitzgerald biography. So what does Mary Dearborn say about Fitzgerald? He's the nicest guy in the fucking world. <laughs> uh, everything that he did in this biography so far is so good, so nice and wonderful in towards Hemingway. And Hemingway is almost nothing but a dick to him. From the moment they meet, he doesn't like Fitzgerald. And like and they're hit uh F Scott and his wife Zelda are just like we're just doing our thing. And the reason why Hemingway doesn't like him is because he's a successful and popular author. Yeah, he already, already had some stuff going on before then. Yeah. And so they they're living the life that Hemingway wanted to live. Right. And so I think that, that all of all of the hostility is yeah. one sided, which makes sense. Um, and at one point, Fitzgerald gave him like the manuscript of The Great Gatsby to read. And Hemingway was like, shit, man, this is really good. And yeah. I'm sure that kind of burned him up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, there's it's so interesting because I didn't know that they knew each other at all. Right. But the fact that they were like they're the epitome of frenemies, I think, you know, like Fitzgerald just wanted to help Hemingway. He literally went out of his way to help this dude because he saw the potential. He liked his attitude and and he just liked him. He's like, ah, I love you, man. And Hemingway's like, no, fuck you, man. I'm going to be better than you. And he's like, nah, come here. I love you, man. Like, it's this weird relationship where no matter what, Fitzgerald was accepting of Hemingway. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we're, we're going to talk about The Sun Also Rises, but before we do that, probably in the next episode, because this is getting too long. Yeah. Um, it it opens up such an interesting conversation um, about how Hemingway treated his friends. Did you have anything else that you wanted, like any other uh, facts or points? Oh, only that it was really The Great Gatsby being published that made Hemingway decide that his next work had to be a novel too. Right. Because at this point he had just written short, short stories, stories and poetry. And then he read Great Gatsby and was like, I can, I gotta do better than this. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna be like F. Scott. So, so since next episode we're gonna talk about The Sun Also Rises and, and his later works, an interesting point is to understand that Sun Also Rises probably would not have been as big of a deal as it is if it wasn't for Fitzgerald. When um, when Hemingway sent the manuscript to Fitzgerald, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, this is great, except for, like, the first 16 pages. It's all reductive and really dumb. Like, you don't need it in there. And Hemingway was so butthurt, he stopped talking to Fitzgerald, didn't say anything to him after that, but then when he submitted the final manuscript to the publisher, he wrote he like wrote on all the first 16 pages and was like, don't use any of this. It's reductive and it doesn't need any like <laughs> it's nothing that I don't cover later on in the story. So you can just get rid of it. So he did exactly what Fitzgerald told him. But then he took the credit and he's like, yeah, I decided that it's not worth putting in. And then he told people later because they're like, oh, didn't Fitzgerald tell you? And he's like, I had I had sent him the old manuscript. I had already made that decision for myself because I'm a good writer too. I was gonna do it anyway. Like, he's such a dick to his friends, and this is this is such an interesting point uh, of his personality. Every single mentor he had, I think, outside of Stein, got backlash for helping him. 
every he had some sort of falling out later on with Stein too that it, was alluded to. Again, yeah, I, I haven't I haven't gotten, gotten to yet, it so. yet, but but yeah, he straight up like he would write parodies of people that would help him. He would write stories. There was one story that he wrote and published around the same time as The Sun Also Rises that was a straight up parody of one of his mentors, and um and he wrote a letter to that guy saying like, look, before you read it. I just want you to know that I I wrote it as, you know, making fun of you, but only because you're so important to me and because, like, I like seeing – I like playing off of who you are. Like, he's, he's double backing, and he's like, I wrote it because I needed to get out of this book deal so that I could publish The Sun, All right, Sun Also Rises with somebody else. Uh, and I needed to write a really annoying character and you're really annoying to me. So I wrote you, but I really like you. And that's why I wrote about like, if you like, have to say that yeah. it's not like yeah. you did a mean thing. <laughs> like <laughs> Every single person in his life, if they helped him, he, there was no good that came of that other than the good that came to Ernest himself. Even with some of his like childhood or like pr- early adolescence friends, like, there was one friend who like she told him something about somebody else and then he like turned around and told that other person right. what she said and started this long feud and Between it's just him. like yeah. why do you do this bro yeah he just he likes the drama he likes the intrigue and i think we'll see that when we talk about um the sun also rises again i haven't read any of his other work and we'll get into my opinion of sun also rises <laughs> in the next episode so uh, I, I think this is a great way to set up for the great works that I, I'm going to use great in a, in a quotation works. Uh, <laughs> the important we'll talk, literary yeah, works. <laughs> that we'll talk about in the next episode and talk about why he's such a big name in the writing community and why it's always like, oh, Hemingway, and, uh, <laughs> you know, drinking black coffee like Hemingway and all that stuff. Whiskey for breakfast like yeah. Hemingway. So, um, Hannah, do you have anything else that you wanted to you wanted to bring up? Nope, that's it. All right. So, uh, again, just reiterating for next episode, we're going to get more into his actual works and conversate about why he wrote what he wrote, how we feel about some of his work. I might read one more book by him. We'll see how I feel. I think you could squeeze I've got one in. so many things to listen to. I've got yeah, our, no. our episode after Hemingway, which I am more excited about. <laughs> um, and I've got so many podcasts that I'm listening to. So, uh, it's really hard for me to justify listening to Hemingway because he's we'll talk about that in the next episode <laughs> um, if you guys want to get a hold of us tell us what you think or give us any information about the authors that we're talking about we would love to hear from you you can email us at lewisandlovecraft at gmail.com you can find us facebook.com backslash lewisandlovecraft or on instagram at lewisandlovecraft or you can just go to our website contact us through that or look at random pictures that we took a year ago uh, lewisandlovecraft.com and as usual we want to thank Jake Basson for our awesome intro music Um, I mean I love our theme it's I the do best too. theme ever I've been thinking about like maybe like remixing it finding someone who can remix it and do like fun like stuff like a with dubstep it. oh that'd be fun I was thinking more like 8-bit sounding or you know all kinds of different stuff but I will never ever get rid of Jake Basson's no it's the best so if you like what you hear and want to hear some of his other work find him on soundcloud.com slash Jake Basson B-A-S-S-E-N if you have a show or you have something that you want music put behind he's more than willing to do that for you too oh yeah yeah so you can contact him through that if you want him to make music for you he's super talented Uh, don't forget to subscribe to our show Um, I have recently made the switch over to Spotify 
uh, from, and I used to use Podcast Addict, um, but I use Spotify now. So um, that's, I've been enjoying that, the way that they do their setup. So subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts at, iTunes, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, all the fun places. And make sure while you're there to rate and review us. It only takes a couple seconds, um, particularly if you use iTunes. I don't, but I know a lot of you guys do. So yeah, because 52% <laughs> of our listeners, at least that's the last time I checked. Yeah, um, it's probably the same. <laughs> Statistics probably around the same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely make sure that you guys leave a review. And, and the most important thing, as usual, is to tell a friend. Just one friend. One friend. Just tell a friend about it. A neighbor. Shout it across the fence as you're social distancing. Yeah. Send a, throw an ax towards one of your classmates <laughs> and have a letter attached to it that says, go check out Lewis Lovecraft. Disclaimer, no, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> what you should do is be nice to your friends. Enjoy them for the companions they are. Don't cheat on them. Don't tell them that they're terrible people or write parodies of them. Appreciate their Appreciate support. your friends <laughs> and tell them about our podcast. And that's how you become a good person. And that's how we're going to end the show. <laughs> Bye.